I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. So glad you're joining with us. Guys, thanks for everyone who came out to our Theology and Practice um, event yesterday with Dr. Greg Allison. It was an amazing time. We had great discussion. You guys had tons and tons of questions, so many that we couldn't cram them all in. Um, for those of you who missed it, let me just say this. You'll be receiving your letter of excommunication in the mail shortly, all right? No, we won't, we won't render that sort of judgment of the law upon you, but we actually recorded it. We're going to be uh, posting that on the church website this week so that you can, you can download that yourself. Also this week, um, Dr. Allison is going to be a special guest on our pastoral devotionals that we do every uh, weekday, Monday through Friday, 8 to 8.15, and we're going to be sort of coming up behind the discussion from yesterday, picking up different questions and issues, things that we didn't have time to get to um, yesterday. So be sure to join us um, this week on those um, pastoral devotionals in the morning. But, you know, Greg took us deep into the bowels of Romans 1 through 6, and we are going there, Romans chapter 7. So I'm going to open your, encourage you to open your Bibles there now. Now, Paul is going to do something this morning that's going to make some of you uncomfortable. And basically, what Paul is going to do is share his feelings, right? I know some of you are already kind of squirming in your seats. Paul is going to give us a front row seat to some of the deepest autobiographical struggles we see of anyone in all of Scripture. And remember, the reason Paul is doing this is that for Paul, God's word is not a sort of abstract set of truths or propositions where we sort of maintain this polite and safe distance. Remember, the word of God is living and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, which means we don't just go to work on the word of God, understanding it, parsing it, analyzing it, although we do that, we don't just go to work on the Word of God, but what? The Word of God goes to work on us. And we get to see, again, Paul modeling this for us in our text this week. Now, we left off last Sunday talking about the believer's relationship to the law. And we talked about this idea that the law is beautiful. The law is a reflection of the glory of God. The law is... Um, is an amazing thing. It shows us the very heart and character of the God, of, of God. But when we said so when we look to the law to justify ourselves, or we look to the law to find our identity or our security or our significance in our obedience rather than Christ, guys, we said this: the law will absolutely crush you, right? You see, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our hearts. Which brings us to this question, it's the one Paul wants to address, so what are we to do with the law of God? How is it supposed to operate and function in our lives? And to answer that, Paul says, pull up a chair, get a cup of coffee, I want to sit down and have a face-to-face -face with you. And we're going to see here, guys, that Paul is anything but the pointy head uh, distant academic in his ivory tower who's simply dispensing truths and creeds for us to sort of admire and affirm from a distance. He's a man just like us, with the same struggles, but most importantly, the same God. So I'm gonna, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 7 this morning, beginning at verse 7. If you can, 
invite you to stand as we read God's word together. We're going to read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Paul speaking, he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, just on an existential level, we read this text, and if we know you, we get this. We get this struggle. Lord, so often we labor to do what we want to do, what is right, we fail to do it. We don't do what you've called us to do. And Lord, we have to go somewhere with that. And Lord, I pray that as we model the Apostle Paul this morning, that we would run to the same place that he runs, and that's to you. So Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. The title of this week's sermon, this ought to make for interesting lunch conversation, The Battle with Sin Within. The Battle with Sin Within. We're going to divide this text into two parts. The first part, verses 7 through 13, we're going to talk about pre-conversion Paul. How did Paul actually become a Christian? And then verses 8, um, sorry, 14 through 25, we're looking at post-conversion Paul. How he continues to work out his salvation with 
fear and trembling as a believer. And I, I think you'll see this is not just his story, but I think if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our story. And let's dive in. Pre-conversion Paul, Paul kind of lays it out, throws the gauntlet down in verse 7 when he says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? Paul says, by no means, right? Get out of here. Not, not happening. Not true. And the reason Paul says that the law is not sin, Paul says, it's through the law that I became aware of sin. Now, when we think about that, let's be honest, none of us relishes being shown our sin, do we? We're not just so eager every morning in our quiet time, God, show me all the wretched depths of my heart. You know, you sit down to lunch with a friend, tell me all my faults and ways that I can grow in Christ, okay? We're, that's our impulse because of our sinful nature, right, is that we're not eager to have our sin exposed. It's not always fun. But here's where Paul's taking us, and I want you to follow this reasoning. I want you to follow this thread because it's something we're going to kind of weave in and out through throughout the course of our sermon time this morning, and here it is. Without an awareness of sin, Paul would not know that he needs grace. And without knowing that he needs grace, Paul would not know that he needs Jesus. And he's going to show us how this works on the ground level of our lives. Now, let me say this. In verses 7 through 13, I think Paul is speaking about his pre-conversion state. He uses the past tense in the Greek. I, in fact, I think in, he's really reflecting on his former life as a Pharisee. Now look at verse 9. Paul says that at one time in his life, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. What that means is, is that there was at some point in his life, Paul was very confident and self-assured of who he was as a Pharisee. He, he was very self confident and assured about his obedience to the law. In fact, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3 exactly what his mindset was at this point in his life. Let's read that. Paul is speaking about his former life, and he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless perfectly. In other words, Paul said there was a point in his life as a Pharisee before he came to know Christ that his conscience was at ease. He, he was self-assured. He was very confident in who he was in his standing before God. But at some point in his life, and we're going to come back to this point, but at some point in his life, Paul was confronted by the Tenth Commandment. Now, if I were just to ask you willy-nilly, what, what is the Tenth Commandment? Who, who could tell me that without reading your Bible? The first day of my ethics class in seminary, the professor came in and said, write down the Ten Commandments in order one through ten, and it would have frightened you for the future of the pastorate in America to see those results, right? We were scrambling. But the Tenth Commandment, Paul tells us what it is. Thou shalt, if you're using the King Jimmy version, thou shalt not covet, Okay, that is the 10th commandment. And in a lot of ways, we have to ask, well, it's interesting, Paul, the way Paul describes this. Paul says, when I read the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covenant, uh, co um, covet, 
Paul says, it literally slayed me. It said, it killed me. It laid me low. And what we want to ask is, how did this work? How did this particular commandment really come to bear on Paul's heart and life in a way that it had not before? Now, in many ways, I think, and Luther talked a lot and taught a lot about the Tenth Commandments, but the Tenth Commandment, in a lot of ways, is the exclamation point on all the other commandments. Now, we know that the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, had no other gods before me. We know that this is the greatest commandment. And in a lot of ways, commandments two through nine give us ways to measure that love for God, right? So if you, if you love God with all your heart, if you have no other gods before him, well, you're not going to murder, or you're not going to talk back to your parents, or you're not going to commit adultery, And we can see that Paul sort of existed on that kind of level with God's commands. In other words, he could read those commands one through nine and say, I've done that. Just like the rich young ruler, I've kept all of these from my youth. And by keeping them, we're talking about externally, behaviorally. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't told a a, a lie, at least a big one, right? Um, I haven't commit, you know, all, I haven't stolen anything except the guy's sunglasses that was left at the theater when we were there, you know, that sort of thing. We kind of exist on that level. But Paul says, when he got to the 10th commandment, it was different. And we have to ask why, and here's why, I think. You see, all the other commandments, it's very easy to point to a behavioral manifestation of that law. But with the 10th commandment to covenant, not to covet, it speaks to the heart. It speaks to what's going on inside. It speaks to our motivation. See, the the Ten Commandment is the one that asks why. Why do you lie? Why do you steal? Why do you lust? And the answer, if if you want to practice this exercise for yourself, well, the reason I lust is because I covet something or someone that doesn't belong to me. The, the, the reason I lie is that I, I covet secrecy and having my way and not having to give in. Um, the, the, the reason I harbor anger in my heart, right, is because I, I covet control and I covet being able to be in command and over myself and over other people's situations. In other words, you can do that through all the commandments. You can go through, and if you want to get to the, from the external to the heart, just apply the 10th commandment, right? And what Paul realized as he got to the 10th commandment is not only have I violated the 10th commandment, I've violated all of them. And it says it laid him low, it slayed him. Let's remember, right, what did a Pharisee value more than anything else? We see this over and over in the Gospels. They coveted. They coveted the praise of men. They coveted money. They coveted attention. They coveted status and reputation. I think it was at the heart of why, humanly speaking, they killed Jesus. And when Paul says this slayed him or cut him to the core, I think we have a clue. And again, I have no way of knowing this with certainty. I'm just following the trail through the scriptures here. We'll ask Paul one day, what was it that 
Will we even know what covet is in heaven? I don't know, right? But I think Acts 27 is in view here. Now, let's give the context to Acts 20, 26. Paul is before Felix sharing his testimony. And in sharing his testimony, remember what Paul once was. He was a murderer. He was killing. He was putting uh, Christians into prison. But Paul is here going to share with Felix, here's what happened at my point of conversion. Hey, listen to Acts 26, 13 through 14. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean, kick against the goads? Whenever we would go to Disney World in times past, we always scoffed, right, and make, secretly in our hearts, right, and made fun of people who put their children in those harnesses. Do you know what I'm talking about? The harness with the long leash. So they, as they're running, you can just jerk them back. We, we thought that was craziness until we didn't think it was craziness. And we put one of our kids in one of those harnesses. I won't tell you which one. And so what was interesting about this process is that the harder one of the children would pull on the leash and the harder we would pull and the harder they would pull, finally they, would, they were kicking against it so bad they just kind of collapsed exhausted, right? And then we tied that leash to the stroller and pushed it through the park, right? That's, that's the nature of it. See, that's what a goat is. See, a goat is literally a, a big stick with spikes on it they would use to goad the animals into line, to keep them in line, whether they're plowing or um, doing other kinds of, of agricultural work. And what would happen is that the, the, the animal would initially resist that. But the more the animal resisted, the tighter they would become and the more it would hurt. And finally, they submitted. Paul said, that's what happened in my conversion. And I want to venture forth this. It's probably what happened in your conversion too. See, at some point, Paul began to be convicted about his sin. And I think it very well could have been through the 10th commandment. Look at all these Christians getting all this attention, the miraculous and wonders, and I'm going to ignore what I see with my plain eyes and the transformed lives, and we're going to put them in their place. But at some point in there, Paul realized he was harboring murder and rage and envy and enmity, and he began to resist it. Isn't this what we do? Because Paul knew, if I give in to this, if I admit what is being pressed upon my heart, that's going to make a claim. That's going to turn my life upside down. I'm going to have to repent and turn and admit I was wrong. And this is where, at this point in time, Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and brought Paul to heal. And let me just say, guys, that's what conversion is. It's what the Word of God does. It awakens sin in our heart. And in our humanness and our sinfulness, we kick against the goads. But the process of conversion is where God changes our heart and the word of God is put in the driver's seat of our life and God is no longer our co-pilot, right? He is our king. 
And we have to rearrange the furniture of our hearts. But it all happens because the word of God, the law of God, has awakened something in our hearts. Guys, there's a lot we could say about this. Let me just mention a couple of things. First of all, you and I have to come to see that the law of God is not our enemy. It's our gracious friend. You cannot know God apart from his law. His law is a reflection of his very nature and beauty. Look at verse 12, what Paul says. So the law is holy. Now listen, and the command is holy and righteous and good. And that's Paul saying that knowing that it's the law that awakened the sin in his heart. But a second thing we need to remember is that, church, it's really, really important that we preach and teach God's law. It's really important to preach and teach and exhort one another with the law of God. Now, we know there's a wrong way to do that. There's a long way, wrong way to preach God's law that's legalistic, that's self-righteousness. But remember, look at verse 7 again. There is no conviction of sin apart from the law. See, and when there is no conviction of sin, just like Paul, we think we're alive, but we're really dead. Without the conviction of sin, there is no repentance, there is no confession, and apart from confession and repentance, there is no Savior. And when there is no Savior, there is no salvation. And this is what God used in the life of Paul to open his eyes. Guys, a, a prominent megachurch pastor a number of years ago was on a TV, daytime TV program with Katie Couric. And Katie Couric asked him, tell me what your core message is in a nugget or in a nutshell. And he said, God is good. So far, so good. God is good. He's for you. He's on your side. When you put your trust in him, even when you have difficult times, you can rise higher. You can excel. You can be leaders. It's an empowering message, not one that pushes people down. That's the operative phrase. Now, Katie Couric, to my knowledge, is not a born-again believer. But even she, you can tell in the interview, she's scratching her head and going, hmm, don't you think you kind of need to, like, talk to people about morals and stuff? I mean, she's just kind of, like, grasping for language, right? Don't people need more of a moral template and to be kind of exhorted and told what to do? And here's what he says. There's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come to my church, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God is good, that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction, that they can become who God has created them to be. Guys, that's a recipe for not curing spiritual disease. That's the same warning given to the prophets. You say, peace, peace but my people have no peace. There's a wrong way to push a moral template, but holding up the law of God is how we get to Jesus. Flannery O'Connor, famous author, said, the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. See, Paul says the law is good because it leads us to God. It will kill you apart from Christ, this was, that was the message last week. We won't preach that right now, right? 
It'll kill you apart from Christ. It will crush you. But through the Spirit, it awakens an awareness of our need for grace. Now, that's pre-conversion Paul. And he's describing to us the process by which God showed him his need for Christ. What we're going to see here under post-conversion Paul is something that happens as a result of this process that's normative and that's to be expected and understood as a believer. So let's look at verses 14 through 25. Look, in fact, look at specifically at verse 15. And I think this is the verse that we all, like, we get, we resonate with. <laughs> we intuitively understand Paul when he says it. Paul says in verse 15, For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, more than a few bottles of theological ink have been spilled debating this text, right? Because there's a group of people who look at verses 14 and 25 and say, there's no way the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, could talk like this, right? I mean, this is clearly pre-conversion Paul. And there's another group that says, no, Paul is talking as a Christian, and he's reflecting upon his sanctification process. Now, let me tell you why I think Paul is giving us an actual account of his post-Christian experience. That's normative, I think, in fact, for you and for me. And if you have questions about this when it's over, you can line up and ask Dr. Allison. He's here this morning. Okay, so just add, take this to him, right? But I'll come back around and unpack these further. First, notice that there's a shift of tenses in these verses. So Paul has been speaking in the past in the Greek in verses 7 through 13, but now he is in the present active indicative, right? He is speaking of something that is happening in an ongoing way. That's number one. Number two, don't you read this text and really get that Paul, despite all his struggles, deep down wants to do what God wants him to do. In the deepest part of his being, he wants to obey God. And even the part that he doesn't want to obey God, he wishes that that part wanted to obey God as well. Can you not hear that in his heart, in his manner? Thirdly, Paul does say in this text that, that he delights in the law of God. Now, this is important. I think this is critical. In his inner being, okay? Let me just say this. If you are not a Christian, you cannot delight in God's law in your inner being. You can admire God's law. You can live your life in kind of a generally principled way according to God's law. You can affirm God's law. You can maintain a polite distance from God's law, but you can't savor it. You can't delight in it. That is a gift only the Holy Spirit can give by opening our hearts and minds. I think it was true of Paul. And finally, and, and this is not what I say as this fourth reason, this is not the most authoritative reason, but I think it's a legitimate reason to say, all of us read this and say, that's me, right? That's my experience. I totally understand that. Now, the first question I want us to wrestle through theologically, if this titanic struggle that Paul is engaging here is really 
a reflection of our ongoing Christian experience, right? Versus super spiritual Christians don't have this struggle. But it's only lower level, carnal, not spirit-filled Christians who have this sort of struggle. I, I, don't, I totally reject that, okay? But how, do we, how, do, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand, for example, when Paul says in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I do want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul Tripp describes the ongoing presence of reality of sin in the believer's life to gravity, right? Because there's a lot of things that we can do to temporarily defy gravity. Just come out and watch me play basketball sometime. It's unbelievable, okay? Actually, never. last time I played basketball, Josh Hughes broke his ankle because of me, and now I've never played again. But that's a whole other story, okay? There's things that we can temporarily do, okay, to defy gravity, but the reality is, unless you have one of those back to the future hoverboard things, when you walk out of here today, one foot in front of the other on the ground, you are bound by gravity. In fact, it's such a part of everything that we do, we don't even think about it, right? It's, it's as ubiquitous as the air that we breathe. Guys, that's the nature of sin in this life. You see, you can be regenerated in your heart. Your heart can be transformed, made alive. You declared righteous. You're your, your eyes are fixed on Christ, but the reality is, is that we live in a creation ordinate sort of way under sin. Do you know how we know? None of us are living forever in this life. Unless Jesus returns, and I hope and pray he does. He could even return right now in the middle of the sermon, and it would be a blessed relief, right? Please return, Lord, please. And some of us are, have that cry in our hearts, Right? Lord, please come quickly. We don't, we don't want to die. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to see people, our loved ones, follow that course. But the reality is, is it's true. It's inevitable. It's everywhere around us. And because of that, now please hear this, even though we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit as believers, we've been given a new nature, a new master, a new love for God, the reality is that we also have to live with the reality of ongoing, indwelling sin. And that sin still has the power when we're not walking by the Spirit to be incredibly enslaving, right? Many of you who have struggled with pornography or other addictions testify to this. Many of you just in the day-to-day -day context of your life and you've been wrestling with certain sins for years, decades, and, and there's this ongoing battle in your soul. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I shouldn't do. There's this constant fight and struggle for obedience. And some of you might even say, you know, Pastor Paul, I actually struggle more with sin now than before I became a Christian. Bingo. See, now that you are a Christian, you are not, you don't have the master of sin. Sin dwells in you, absolutely. But see, now you have the Holy Spirit live in you. And he is jealous for your affections. 
and he is on a one-way mission. The Spirit of God is to retake the ground of your hardened heart and my hardened heart. Christ lives in us, and because of that, Paul calls this, what? A war. Christian, you are in a war. Look back at the text. Look at what Paul says. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's verse 22. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And as with any war, particularly this war, this spiritual war, there's going to be casualties, right, in this life. This is, I think, what Jesus was getting at in Mark 9 when he says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is, no better, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Let me just give you a couple more grim things to think about before we make the, the gospel turn here. Church, don't underestimate your ability or anyone else's ability, Christian or otherwise, not just to sin, but to sin grievously. To sin treacherously. See, we live in the already and the not yet of the Christian life. Yes, we've been indwelt with the Spirit. Yes, we are a new creature in Christ, but ugh, we still have old man sin tugging at our hearts. And so don't underestimate yours and others' ability to sin grievously. See, we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. We still retain the ability, therefore, to do terrible things, which means a couple of things just practically. Number one, this is why accountability is really important, right? This is why plurality in leadership or otherwise is very important. And I'm not just speaking about elders, there needing to be a plurality and authority being vested in a group of men versus one man, but the odds are less likely that 12 men will do something heinously stupid than one single man acting alone, right? But guys, you and I need plurality in all areas of our life. Some of you are contemplating massively big decisions. Where do I go to school? Am I to get married? Who do I marry? What job do I have? Where am I going to move? Finances, college, all those things. And isolated in and of yourself, you have the great capacity to be very short-sighted about wisdom. And it's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why we need people. It's why we need people speaking in and looking in, not in a judgmental to bring death sort of way, but in a let's bring you to Christ sort of way. As Ronald Reagan says, trust, but what? Verify. And so there's some real lessons there, I think, and knowing how we ought to structure, and this is not the time and place for this sermon, governments, institutions, otherwise knowing that the more power is consolidated in man, the more disastrous oftentimes it becomes. 
Now, let me just say, of course, we could stop the sermon right here and everything that we've said would be absolutely true. But you know what? It wouldn't be the gospel. Because there are three things that I want to encourage us with that Paul points us to in this text as we finish this out. Number one, here we go. Christian, do you find yourself at war? If so, be encouraged because this is a sign that the Holy Spirit is active in your life. See, it's very possible like Paul to be alive apart from the law, completely oblivious to your plight, but still on a death spiral towards destroying your life. Guys, be encouraged this morning that God loves you enough not to leave you alone. That God is bringing his spirit to bear on your heart. And that that struggle that you have and that I have at its core, I know this is really hard for us to understand, is God's gracious work in our lives. So be encouraged. Number two, know this. The sin that dwells within you, I believe, is not the truest part of you. See, look, look, look at verse 17. Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. He's not saying sin made me do it or the devil made me do it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the deepest, truest part of me wants to follow God and wants to obey God, but I'm still wrestling and struggling. I want you to listen to how First Peter puts this. Here's what Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Because when you die, and blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus, when you die, your sin nature dies with you. It's perishable. But there is something in you when you die that will never perish. And that's the sacred seed planted by the word of God and nurtured to life through the Holy Spirit. That is the truest part of you. And sometimes in the middle of that struggle that you're wrestling with, and, and John MacArthur had a great commentary on this verse, sometimes when you're in the middle of that great struggle in your soul and you're fighting against sin, you can rightly say, you know what, I'm struggling with this, but this is not the truest part of me. I, this thing that's encroaching upon my soul, it's an alien life. The truest part of me is the living word of God, the imperishable seed which dwells within my heart. And third, and lastly, finding, upon finding yourself in this life or death struggle, start by doing what Paul does. First thing out of the blocks, Cry out to God. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Luke was a companion of Paul's. And Paul quotes Luke in one of his letters and refers to it as scripture. I have to wonder, I don't know, if Paul has Luke 18 in mind. 
when he talks about this crying out to God. And you know the two verses. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, that's Paul's posture. That's our posture as the people of God. Folks, some of you just need to go home today and cry out to God and beat your chest and say, God, be merciful to me. I'm so tired of the sin that entangles. I am I'm so worn out from this ongoing struggle, but I know it's not the truest part of me. The truest part of me is the imperishable seed which dwells in my heart through the gift of faith. And I think it's at this point when Paul has finished his cry out to God that he pens this next verse when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you want to know what that's all about, you're going to have to come back next week. All right, let's pray.